Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2. Last week, I announced that I'm starting a new sermon series, kind of slowly preaching through the book of Mark as he introduces Jesus to us. And one of the unique aspects of the gospel, according to Mark, is how action-focused he is. Out of all of the other gospel writers, he tends to really focus on uh, where Jesus moved and where he went and, and the travels and the actions of Jesus. The gospels of Mark and Luke and John, they have more words. They're the larger gospels. And if you'll read the a red-letter Bible, like I certainly love doing, you'll find much more red letters in Matthew or Luke than you will with John. But that doesn't make it any less uh, inspired than the other Gospels. It's just the, that's the way Mark does. He just focuses mostly on the movements of Jesus instead of the words. And Mark, he finds we find Jesus doing things and going places. And as we have discussed in earlier sermons, it's, like, it's likely that we are hearing and seeing Peter's first-hand account, accounts of Jesus' ministry through the writing of Mark. Uh, you might remember that Mark was not an eyewitness as far as we know. He traveled, though, with Peter quite a bit. We believe that Mark writes from listening to the stories of Peter. So as you're reading through uh, Mark, I just encourage you to put Peter's glasses on because that's how we're hearing some of Mark's story stories. In our text today in Mark 2, we'll see Jesus uh, interacting with several groups of people in different ways. He's teaching crowds at the Sea of Galilee. Right now, he's at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Capernaum is what we kind of consider his hometown, Jesus' hometown as an adult. It's where lots of his, his, uh, his disciples come from, and so he spends a lot of time there. Uh, so he's teaching in this chapter crowds that have gathered around this, that northern part of the Sea of Galilee. In this passage, he's calling Levi to follow him out of his tax booth. He's, he is reclining at a table with a large group of tax collectors and, and what they call sinners in those days. And he's arguing a bit with Pharisees and scribes. And he's answering questions about, uh, from disciples of John the Baptist. They've got questions and all of this happens within a pretty short passage. Most of it is found in, in Mark chapter 2. So in honor of reading God's word, would you please stand? I'm not going to try to deal with every single one of those, but it kind of helps us to know what's happening in a short period of time. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. What I'm about to read to you, my friends, is God's inspired, authoritative word without error. And if you'll read his word every day, if you'll memorize it, if you will apply it, I promise you, it will make you a better parent. It will make you better, a better businessman. It'll help you know how to deal with your taxes. It'll help you to know how to deal with your conflicts. The word of God was written for us that we could draw closer to the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Mark wanted us to recognize certain truths in these stories. In the first portion of this, we see how Christ invited them to follow. The first scene in our passage takes us beside the Sea of Galilee. It makes sense that a crowd has now gathered and is following Jesus. You see, earlier in chapter 1, Jesus invited several fishermen to follow him. They immediately left their businesses and they followed. Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and later he was teaching in the synagogue and he cast a demon out of a man. And then he healed many who either were sick or demon-possessed. He, he had just healed a, a paralytic and then also made a bold declaration about the authority, his authority to forgive sins. And verse 12 ends with people who saw all of these things and they said, we have never seen anything like this. So it's not surprising that after these things happened in the last day or two, the scripture says all of the crowd were following him. And as the crowd was coming, they were also following his teaching. Mark doesn't tell us specifically what Jesus was teaching at this very moment of the scripture that I, I read. We have plenty of content from Matthew or Luke to imagine what Jesus was saying in this context, but Mark doesn't see the content as the key to the story. Instead, he, he focuses on what Jesus does next. Remember, Mark's a man of action, a writer of action. So it's in the context of his teaching and healing ministry that Jesus calls Levi to follow him. We see the story in, starting in verse 14. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. I realize that we are accustomed to hearing Jesus say, follow me, and seeing people leave everything to follow him. But we should not stop to be amazed at this. His followers we're taking risks to follow this new teacher. He spoke with such authority. He did such amazing miracles. They were being asked to leave their homes, 
to leave their businesses, to leave their comfort, to leave their salaries. Just put yourself in their place. This man comes to your community, to your neighborhood, and he does and says some amazing things, and he invites you to follow, and and now you have to make the decision to leave everything that you know, leave all of your safety, leave all of your income, leave your family, your comfort to follow someone saying something that no one has ever said before. That's the context here. The invitation to follow Christ was and is still risky. Notice Jesus has already called Simon and Andrew and James and John. They were four fishermen. We find the story in the last part of chapter 1. And now he's calling Levi the tax collector. So Jesus in his early days began to invite men to follow him as significant followers. There were many people besides the 12 disciples, you can imagine, that were following him. But these 12 he chose to teach them very specifically. Now, we don't find Levi, the name Levi, listed as one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. It's believed that he is the same person as who we call Matthew. In fact, in Matthew's account, of this event in his own gospel, he calls the tax collector Matthew. So Matthew, the, the, the gospel writer, calls the tax collector Matthew. Now, with apologies to our own Ross Hurst, uh, though in our culture we, we might make jokes of IRS agents and, and some aversion to tax collectors, It's probably nothing like the attitude that Jews had towards tax collectors of their days. Because tax collectors always represented the enemy, the Romans' authority over top of, of Jews in Israel taking away their freedom. Tax collectors were generally viewed as traitors to the Jewish people. The Roman government actually hired uh, Jews to be their, their tax collectors, and they were given the privilege to harshly collect the taxes for, uh, from Jews who lived, and, and those tax collectors lived right here in the same neighborhoods as their Jewish friends. The tax collectors were often crooked and they made their salary by overcharging the taxes. They knew that they had to give a certain amount of tax to the Romans so they would add certain percentages and they would then take that as their own salary. They, they got no salary except to ch- overcharge the taxes. Most tax collectors were quite wealthy during this day. James Edwards highlights uh, this fact in, his, in a, one of his books. He says, The touch of a tax collector r- rendered a house unclean. Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from tax collectors since revenue from taxes was deemed as robbery. Jewish 
contempt of tax collectors is epitomized in the ruling the Jews could lie to tax collectors with impunity. So the, the Jews made their own rules that you could lie to a tax collector and it's okay. Don't worry about it. It may be that, con uh, that contact with Levi was especially more offensive than contact with a leper since a leper's condition was not chosen whereas a tax collector's was. That's the context of Jesus inviting a tax collector to be one of his disciples. This is who Jesus chose to be his next disciple. In fact, we don't have a record of Jesus calling all 12 disciples. We just find out later that he called several. But it's interesting that we do have the account of Jesus calling this disciple. I think it's right to see this as an invitation to Levi to follow Jesus. But we, but we should remember that this word follow is more than just come here for a minute. It, it's not come and look at this. This was a command to lay aside every other co competing priority to put Jesus first. That's what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. It wasn't come here, I want to show you something interesting. It was come, leave everything behind, don't turn back, follow me completely. The account in Luke's gospel captured this more, this, this more specifically when it was said, to, said here, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Do you remember what I said about the authority of a tax collector? Do you remember what I said about the way that, that a tax collector was protected because, his because he got all of his authority by the Romans? Do you remember what I said about the salary that he received and he was quite wealthy? And Levi got up, left all of that, and followed him. The invitation to follow Christ was and is costly. We don't know what Levi had observed in Jesus' ministry before this point. We don't know if he had witnessed Jesus doing miracles. We don't know if he had sat listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or, or any of his teachings. We don't know. Certainly, it's reasonable to assume he knew something about this teacher before he left everything and followed him. But whatever he knew or didn't know, he responded in faith to Jesus' command. Jesus issued this specific command, follow me to Levi. But there was a more general invitation to faith here in this passage. Look at verse 15 with me. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. If I were you, I would circle that word, followed, in verse 15. Not only 
did Jesus call Levi, but Levi threw a party at his house, and Jesus came and had a party with many tax collectors and sinners. As we see in this next point, the the Pharisees had something to say about this. I know you can't imagine that. But the Pharisees had something to say about Jesus partying with tax collectors. I'm guessing that if tax collectors were not welcome as upstanding people in the Jewish society, they had to hang out with other outcasts. I can imagine the table was full, not only Levi, the tax collector, but you had his friends, the other men and women that were outcasts, the, the prostitutes and the pimps and the gamblers and the prison guards and the drug dealers, you know, all of the people that weren't invited to the temple because they weren't good enough, they weren't clean enough, they weren't rich enough. It was quite an odd party for a traveling religious leader to attend, no doubt. Also notice that among this group were many that followed Jesus. Here's something else from that, the same author, Edwards. He said, the word for follow is used in the gospel only if only of Jesus' disciples, never of those who opposed him. Occurring 19 times in Mark, this word following is a load-bearing term that describes the proper response of faith. And it is indeed synonymous with faith. Following is an act that involves risk and cost. It is something one does, not simply what one thinks or believes. Did you hear that? It seemed like when Levi, the tax collector, decided to follow Jesus, when he made that decision, his other friends decided to make that decision too, and they decided we will follow Jesus, not physically follow Jesus, but with faith in a very risky decision, put our faith in this teacher. Prostitutes and gamblers and prison cards and pimps, they said, hey, if Jesus wants one of our own, maybe he wants a sinner like me too. Can I just say, never underestimate your example in following Jesus. The best evangelists are not on a platform, they're not on a TV program, and haven't gone through seminary. It's us. Those that live and breathe with all of our friends, we become the absolute best evangelist pastors that our friends desperately need. They need somebody they already know, love, and trust. And that's you. 
And that was this tax collector by the name of Levi. The invitation to follow meant a life of faith. Levi is serving as an example to us here of how we should respond to Jesus. Levi, it says, Levi believed. He risked. He followed. All of us need to consider how Jesus is calling us to follow him today. Now, for some, this will mean leaving a world of unbelief and putting your trust in Jesus as the Son of God. The Son of God who came to the earth as man, who taught us how to live, who commanded us to follow him, who died on the cross to save us and rose again from death. It will, may, it will mean having faith in him. For, for others of us, it's a call to hear his words and obey them. We've grown up with them. Now it's time for us to obey them. And it could also mean leaving your vocation for, God, for some type of full-time gospel ministry, as Matthew Levi did. Actually, I always want to assume that God is calling some from my congregation all the time to step into full-time ministry. What would it look like if some of us here decided that God was calling us to full-time pastoral service? Full-time youth ministry, full-time missions work. I'm confident that in every single congregation, God is in the process of calling, developing, mentoring somebody. But just as likely, it might mean that all of us recognize that our, our call is to be a full, in full-time service to God whether we stay in our same vocation or not. What would happen if every single day, every single one of us who, who believe in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, go to our place of work with this prayer in our mind, Lord, I will be your voice today. I commit my hands, my feet, my conversations. I want to be your evangelist. I want... I want to speak on your behalf. I want to invite people to be followers of Jesus. Today, I commit myself to you. What would happen in our places of work, in our school, and even our homes if every day that was our purpose, our goal? But don't fall into this wrong-headed idea that following Jesus can, can just be an add-on in your life. Following Jesus not, is not an add-on. Jesus addresses this in 21 and 22 later, or to quote an email signature from probably a, a Christian computer specialist down at the bottom of his email, it says, Christianity is not a plug-in, it's an operating system. If you've got a computer, you know what that means. It's systemic. When we follow Jesus, it affects everything. It controls everything in our life. It's not just a hat we put on. We've addressed Jesus' invitation, and now I'd like for us to look at Jesus' admonition. Look at Mark 15 through 17. The scripture says, and as he reclined, now Jesus is, is at this, this party with all these outcasts, including Levi. And as he is reclined at 
at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This scene has Jesus at a dinner party with many tax collectors and sinners, the scripture says. It it illustrates Jesus' incarnation in action. It's incarnation at work. That word incarnation means in the flesh or or God living with us. That's what that word means. Jesus is not only the God, the Son of God made flesh, he is, is one of those who are fleshly. He's not only God, but he's man. And he's not limiting himself to the temple or the synagogues. This Jesus is dwelling amongst those who are sinners. One might expect after Jesus called Levi that they'd go off on a company retreat together and with other serious uh, students of God's word and, and teach him the dangers of associating with the Romans or the wrong crowd or the wrong crowds of, of, of even Jews. But of course, that's not what happened at all. Instead, Levi throws a party at his house. And he invites all of his tax collector friends to come and meet Jesus. Luke says in his gospel, Levi made a great feast in his house. It's quite possible that Levi's job as a tax collector was to to tax commerce or business or commercial fishing. That was where a lot of families got their income there on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee is where the, 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 the warm Jordan River flows down south into the Sea of Galilee. And it's warm, it's warm there, so a lot of fishing occurs right at the top of that, the Sea of Galilee. And so it could be that Levi, as a tax collector, his responsibility was perhaps to collect the taxes from the men who had fishing businesses. And if you've been watching The Chosen, that's kind of how they portray Levi, the tax collector. Wouldn't you have wanted to watch the interaction with Simon Peter? The out, he's outspoken, he's a loud mouth often. And here, Andrew, James, and John, they're given the, the, the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. How do those disciples who were fishermen interact with now Levi, the guy who probably took taxes from them. And now he says he's a follower of Jesus. And we really don't know what that interaction was. The scripture isn't clear to it. What we do know is how the scribes and the Pharisees responded. The religious elders did have something to say about it. Mark simply portrays their questions as an honest, why does your teacher 
eat with sinners? It's a fair question. Luke, however, in his gospel, gives a bit in more insight into their, in, into their heart. Luke 5.30 says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. Jesus' disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I can imagine their tone, partly because of my own natural sinful bent towards being a self-righteous Pharisee myself. In fact, if you, if you look at at least one of my social media profiles, I describe myself as a recovering Pharisee. They grumbled. In their own twisted way, they were trying to figure out who in the world is this Jesus. He's saying some really odd things, and now he's partying with some really odd people. They've heard him teach with such great authority in the last few days. They've observed him casting out demons. They've seen him heal a paralyzed man just a day or two before. They saw him heal a leper. They even heard him say, I forgive you of your sins. And then Jesus falls in with the wrong crowd, eats with them, and seems to be happy to sit at a table with pimps and prostitutes and tax collectors, no doubt. You might think that this is just a minor infraction, but for the Pharisees, this is a major misstep. And in their view, Either Jesus doesn't have the discernment to know who he's with, or he knows and he still wants to eat dinner with them. Doesn't he know that they will make him unclean? Him sitting at this party is going to ruin his reputation. That it would make other people question if he truly is holy or not. And whatever questions they had, Jesus clears everything up and he answers their question. I don't don't know if it actually cleared things up for them or just simply blew their mind, but this is how he finished, how he responds to them. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the second time this group is labeled as the sinners. In verse 15, Jesus is reclining at the table with tax collectors and sinners. It's the word that's used. What are we to make of that label? Was it that these were worse sinners then all the others around, probably not, probably not, after all, the whole passage is pointing to the wrongheadedness of the scribes and the Pharisees who believe they took obedience to the Torah, seriously, the laws of the Old Testament. They took it very seriously. One, came, uh, one commentator, Dr. Lane, uh, helps us understand this word. He says, the term cannot be understood 
in the generally accepted sense of transgressors of the moral law of God, since Mark would then have written tax collectors and other sinners. He said the term is, is technical in this context for a class of people who were regarded by the Pharisees as inferior because they showed no interest in their scribal tradition. The difference here really doesn't boil down to people who are morally righteous versus those who are morally sinful. Rather, it's between those who refuse to acknowledge their need for redemption versus those who readily accept and recognize their need for, for, for redemption. So where do the Pharisees go wrong? I said in, in the second point that Christ admonished them. By, by this, I mean Jesus was giving the, the scribes and the Pharisees a correction, a, a, a warning, a, a reprimand. He did this by his actions as well as his words. He was modeling a way that they needed to change and was also changing their underlying belief system. But where did they go wrong in their understanding? It's a pretty large question, and I could preach an entire sermon on where they went wrong. If, if I could just speak very generally for a moment, I'd like to highlight just three things that I think they missed, and Jesus was trying to correct. First, the Pharisees believed that they were righteous because they cared about traditional religious things. They cared about the law and the scribal traditions that surrounded it. I don't doubt that they worked hard at being righteous as well as they should. They memorized, they studied, they got PhDs in this, this scribal law that was outside of the scripture. But they mistook external obedience to certain laws or traditions as a sufficient measurement of true righteousness. They were religious, much more than most of the other groups in Israel. They, they illustrated well Luke chapter 11, or 18, verse 11, where it says, the Pharisee, standing by, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But in the end, God requires more than just good efforts or intention. He requires perfect obedience which means we are all in desperate need of a Savior. In other words, the Pharisees missed their need for a Redeemer, a Savior. Secondly, the Pharisees overlooked the heart of the issues in the law. They overlooked mercy. They overlooked forgiveness and humility and love in their zeal to look righteous by following in their, their, their zeal to look righteous, they followed the external commands. They wanted to look right. They wanted to sound right. They wanted to have the right robes on. They wanted people to see them uh, to be right in God's sight. Can I tell you that Christianity is not a religion? It's a relationship. The Pharisees forgot that. And last, the Pharisees missed what really defiles a person. They were deceiving themselves to believe that being around sinners would make them unacceptable to God. 
They were concerned about eating with unwashed hands or dishes that perhaps hadn't been cleaned in a very particular ceremonial way. But unwashed hands or unwashed bowls pales in comparison to the damage caused by treating persons made in the image of God as if they make you clean, uh, unclean. The combination of these wrong beliefs meant that the Pharisees were missing out on God's mission to redeem mankind. By focusing on a narrow idea of holiness, they missed out on the broader mission of God to bring salvation to the lost. Jesus does this demolition on these wrong beliefs by the simple statement found in Mark 2.17, I came to call the to call the uh, to not call the righteous but I came to call the sinners this does not exclude the scribes and the pharisees it certainly doesn't it certainly doesn't exclude you and me from salvation it simply means that we must acknowledge that Jesus is our only hope for salvation So the coming of Jesus radically changed Judaism. But can I tell you that the coming of Jesus into our lives radically changes us? Just three really quick lessons. Jesus wants and can use anyone who responds to him with authentic faith. The tax collector Matthew would have been the last person the church of the day would have chosen to use. So God can use anything, anyone who has an authentic faith. The second is we, we can't keep our old ways and just add a little Jesus. Just a little dab, a little pinch of Jesus. It's not what he's saying. One doesn't say to Jesus, thank you for adding just a little peace, just a, a little forgiveness, maybe a pinch of joy to my agenda, my plan." not what we say. Or I will appreciate the gift of eternal life after you've allowed me to live my own way for a little bit. Instead, Jesus is calling us to a new kind of faith, complete life in him. He's calling us to follow completely. He's inviting us to dine with him. He's inviting us to be on his mission to follow his agenda, not ours. We must leave everything behind, in a sense, to follow Jesus. And the last is this. It's better to surround yourself with those who know they are spiritually sick than those who are only focused on external righteousness. Jesus' mission statement in verse 17 is hope and salvation for the lost, but it's also a correction to our temptation to surround ourselves with those who are externally righteous instead of those who know that they're spiritually sick. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, he said, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous. I've come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And my real last point, my other last point, is this. Don't underestimate the community who will be watching your life change. I think you may be shocked at how many people are secretly looking at you to see how 
a real Christian will respond. How you will deal with pressure. How you will pay your taxes. What you will say about politics. They're watching your attitude. They're watching how you do your marriage, how you treat your kids, how you handle conflict. You may not have told them specifically, I am a follower of Jesus, but they know you are. And they're watching you. They're watching you because they want what you have. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, the scripture says, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. Listen, for there were many who followed him. I'm not talking about physically walked in the door to have lunch with him. They followed Jesus and went into the tax collector's house. I wonder what tax collectors and sinners will set at your table if you only invited them to follow Jesus with you. Would you please stand? One of my favorite teachers, preachers actually, of about 100 years ago was uh, Ray Steadman. And he paints a picture of, his, of this scene of Jesus sitting with the sinners at, at dinner with them. He said, what a collection of rascals it must have been there on that day. All the tax collectors of the city, all the sinners, all the despised social outcasts were sitting there. As the scribes of the Pharisees passed by, they saw that right in the midst of it all, among the beer bottles and the poker chips sat Jesus. And they were obviously scandalized. It was obvious that he was the friend of these men. He was not lecturing them. He was sitting among them and eating and drinking with them. The scribes were simply appalled at this, he said, and called the disciples aside. Why does he do things like this? Doesn't he know who these people are? Why does he allow himself to be seen in the same company as these people? Jesus' answer was really revealing. He actually agrees with their remarks. He says, in effect, you're right. These people are sick and they're troubled and they're hurting. Their style of life has damaged them deeply. They don't see life rightly. They are covering up many evils. They are false in many ways. You're right. These are sick men. But where else would a doctor be? That's his argument. I've come to heal men. And therefore, where they are hurting, 
It's where I'm needed. I'm wondering how much more effective we would be if we sat in more bars. Do you think your pastor would ever say that? I wonder what would happen to the church of Christ if we sat in more bars with alcoholics. Saying, hey, you want to talk? Can we pray together? Can I, can I take you, maybe we can get a, a hamburger together and just do life. I wonder what would happen. I wonder what would happen if we invited more prostitutes to our Thanksgiving meal. I wonder how that would affect his or her life. Having somebody willing just to love on them. Have a conversation without expecting anything from them. I wonder what would happen. I wonder what would happen if we hired more drug addicts to work for us. And we just did life with them. We mentored them. Took them out to eat. How can I help you through this addiction? It's exactly what Christ was saying. Christ said to the Pharisees, You're right. These are sick people. But where else would a doctor be?
One of my missionary heroes of 100 years ago was by the name of C.T. Studd. He gave up a very large fortune to become a missionary in the jungles of Africa. He writes this, and I've loved it ever since I read it 30 years ago. He said, some like to dwell within the sound of a church and chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Sometimes we have a goal of being as far away from hell as possible. Rightly so, we understand that. But I wonder what would happen. I wonder what would happen if we said, Lord, whoever you want me to minister to, I will. Because I promise you in the little mission field that God has dedicated you to be responsible for, whether it's your office, your store, your school, there are people right there that are living a hell that only you will be able to speak truth into. Would you receive this benediction? John says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. So now, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace, for he's already gone before you. You're dismissed.